I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast from the Post and Courier. Nearly five months since their murder, no one has been arrested for the fatal shootings of Maggie and Paul Murdoch, a mother and son and members of a prominent and powerful South Carolina legal family. But in that time, attorney Alec Murdoch, Maggie's husband and Paul's father, has had a dramatic fall from grace, one that's still unfolding and raising new questions. In early September, Alec admitted to a 20-year opioid addiction, checked himself into rehab, and after being accused by his partners of stealing money, left his law office, a law office his great-grandfather had founded in 1910. Over Labor Day weekend, he was reportedly shot in the head, and then he was arrested after confessing to try to orchestrate his own murder in order to leave a $10 million life insurance payout for his youngest son. And he was sued by the sons of his late housekeeper, who say Murdoch swindled them out of $4.3 million. His law license has also been suspended by the state Supreme Court. And this week, attorneys said that federal authorities are investigating his alleged financial crimes. Now, this story has become a very complicated one to follow. And this week, we're breaking down all that's come to light about the disgraced attorney over the past few months. Investigative reporter Avery Wilkes and editor Glenn Smith have been following this story closely. And they're here today to help us recap what's happened. Glenn was on this podcast in July to discuss what we knew at the time about the murders of Maggie and Paul. Today, we're focusing on Alec Murdoch and the multiple open investigations connected to him. I'm Avery Wilkes. I'm a projects reporter at the Post and Courier. I am a Glenn Smith. I am the watchdog and public service editor. So September 4th was a day where a whole new chain of events started to unfold. What happened that day according to what was said at the time? So what what did we know that day had happened? So September 4th was a bizarre day. We all got an alert that Alec Murdoch had been shot in the head. Also strange to learn that he had survived getting shot in the head. This was months after his wife and son had been brutally killed at the family's hunting property. So it opened a a whole laundry list of questions about just what the heck was going on. The initial story that came out that SLED was investigating and that was parroted in later days by Murdoch's attorneys was that Alec Murdoch had been inspecting a flat tire on the side of a rural Hampton County road when someone drove by in a truck and then doubled back and sort of asked him if he was okay, what was going on. And as Murdoch turned his head, he was shot in the back of the head. That's what he told Sled. So to follow this chain of events as it happened just a couple days later, Murdoch announced that he would be quitting his law firm and entering rehab. Then we learned that the firm is saying that he had been misusing money from the practice. So at this point, what did we know about those allegations against him made by his law firm? Yeah, very little was said on the record officially at the time. But there was a report in the New York Times that Alec had been stealing money from the firm, that it was potentially firm money as well as client money. But we weren't really hearing much about how much it it actually was, just that it potentially numbered in the millions of dollars. 
And also at the time, there were all these sort of dueling statements between Murdoch and his old law firm that were being issued. And Murdoch essentially vaguely apologized for various wrongs he had committed and also for the fact that his actions had been a distraction from the investigation into the deaths of his wife and son. He he sort of indicated that he had, had made some unspecified mistakes and had to go into rehab to deal with some unspecified problems and sort of stepping aside from the law firm for, for everyone's best interest. Then the report in the New York Times surfaces and it's, it becomes pretty clear that he, he didn't sort of come to this conclusion in the hospital. He he was confronted with it the day before the Labor Day shooting on September 3rd. They accused him of misappropriating money. He left the firm. Then all this other stuff unfolded. At this time too, was it a surprise that he was saying he was entering rehab? Was it widely known that he had been struggling with that prior to this? No. Um, in fact, a lot of his colleagues had professed they had no idea. They'd never seen any signs that he had been addicted to anything or had any substance abuse issues. His law firm later put out a statement saying that no one that they had spoken with was aware of his substance abuse. So that was that was kind of a shock. Uh, and then it was also shocking later on when his attorney said that he'd been dealing with these issues off and on for as much as 20 years and that they basically significantly worsened since early June when his wife and son were killed. Early on after the murders, rumors had circulated that he had some sort of a drug issue or someone in his family had a drug issue. And I remember we checked with a whole bunch of people and they said, no, not not him. I, I don't see any indication of that. And then this popped out. And initially, they were being very vague as to what the issue was he was being treated for. And then it became, well, he's he's got an opioid problem, and it's a longstanding opioid problem, perhaps two decades. So while all of this is happening, there are a lot of questions being raised about this shooting, about the circumstances around it, the the details of the wounds, who he was shot by. Can you talk a little bit about those questions and that speculation that was starting to build around that time? The circumstances just sounded so bizarre, right? He goes out for a drive and he he gets a flat tire. Somebody drives by and just out of nowhere decides to take a random shot and and try to kill him. There's no gun. Just all these questions swirling around, uh, you know, in light of the fact that Obviously, his, his wife and son had been murdered. You know, just, you know, what, what are the odds that lightning is striking twice like this? The other thing that prompted a lot of speculation was that Slade had interviewed him and he was supposedly cooperating with police. He'd seen this truck, he'd seen this guy, and there were even indications that he might have worked with a sled sketch artist to produce a composite sketch of what this shooter looked like and what the truck looked like. Yet Sled wasn't releasing any of this stuff. And if you have somebody driving around just randomly shooting people on the road, wouldn't you want to get this information out to people? And they just weren't and they wouldn't discuss it. So again, it made people question what was going on. So then another day came where this case really took a pivot and that was September 14th when SLED announces that they'd made an arrest and that the shooting was actually an insurance fraud scheme. So at this point, what do we know and how has the story changed? From what we've learned 
Murdoch gets to a point where he's been in detox for a few days. His brain is unfogging, according to his lawyers. And SLED is planning to drive to his facility and interview him again about what happened and try to get more information from him so they can track down this unknown assailant who allegedly shot him. Before that meeting, Murdoch speaks with his attorneys and he comes clean about how the shooting was not by an unknown assailant, but was instead by an acquaintance of his named Curtis Edward Smith. He admits both to his attorneys and to SLED that this is his side of the story, that he believed that he wanted to die. He was depressed after the deaths of his wife and son, but he believed if he committed suicide, his life insurance policy, which was valued at $10 million, would not pay out to his remaining son, Buster. So he thought he needed to enlist someone to kill him to make it look like a homicide instead of a suicide. He was actually wrong about that because in South Carolina, the suicide exclusions are no longer valid in insurance policies after two years. According to Murdoch, he enlists his friend, Curtis Edward Smith, who drives to meet him on the side of this Hampton County Road. Murdoch provides him a gun and asks him to shoot Murdoch in the head. And Smith complies and does so, but the bullet doesn't kill him. He survives. He loses his vision for uh, a few minutes and comes to, realizes that he's alive, freaks out and calls 911 and is picked up by a good Samaritan who drives him to a certain extent until they meet an ambulance. He's then airlifted to the Savannah Hospital where he is treated and medical records show he was treated for a gunshot wound to the head. What do we know about... Curtis Edward Smith, and then also what is his version of events that he has shared publicly? According to Murdoch's lawyers, uh, Curtis Edward Smith is known as Fast Eddie, is uh, his main drug supplier. They say he's he's the main source of uh, his opioids. We know from his arrest that SLED said they found methamphetamine in his trailer in, in a rural part of Colleton County. Not a whole lot is known about him, but he did give a deposition in a civil case from from several years before where he explained his life a little bit. And he was divorced and he was a former logger, truck driver, had a trucking company. You know, again, he's painted as this big drug kingpin guy, but you look at his record and he's got really nothing on there but speeding tickets. A lot of speeding tickets, but still speeding tickets. His version of event is, is markedly different than Murdoch's. Yeah, so Smith says, A, he's not Murdoch's drug dealer. He's, in fact, a distant cousin of Murdoch's who has done odd jobs for him over the years. And he said he responded to Murdoch's call to come meet him, just like he would for any other job or or request from help. And when he got there, he says that Murdoch handed him a gun and asked him to to shoot him. Smith said, no, there's no way I'm not going to do that. He says that Murdoch made a made a move, a twisting motion, like he was going to shoot himself with the gun. Smith tried to stop him, and they sort of struggled for the gun. And the gun may have gone gone off, but Smith said he was a thousand percent sure that it didn't hit Murdoch. And you know, maybe Murdoch hit the ground, and that's where his you know his wound came from. But Smith said he is positive that he did not shoot Alec Murdoch. Smith admittedly says he took the gun and drove off and disposed of it so that Murdoch couldn't use it to kill himself. 
he says he doesn't know what happened to Murdoch after that. That's his side of events as told to several national news outlets. So even before Smith publicly shared his version of events, there was already some speculation about whether or not Alec Murdoch had been shot or the severity of the wound. Why was there that speculation? Murdoch's lawyers had said it was a significant wound, entry and exit holes from a bullet, as well as a possible skull fracture and significant bleeding. Sled had described it as a superficial wound. And there was a incident report prepared by law enforcement at the scene that said that there was no wound at all. Later, they admitted that they had filled that form out incorrectly, but it did cause some confusion. There's also the fact that he only spent two days in the hospital after being shot in the head, which you know, to the average person seems odd. He appeared at his bond hearing and didn't have a bandage on his head, didn't look like he had any wounds at all. So there were just you know a great deal of questions. And, and again, there's a lot of people who doubted basically anything that Murdoch said because of how he had gone around for you know more than a week telling everyone that he was shot by an unknown assailant. His credibility and his lawyer's credibility really took a hit during that week as well. The Post and Courier has also been able to review hospital records from Alec Murdoch's time in the hospital after this shooting. What did those show and did those definitively say that he was shot and what kind of wounds he sustained? They did. We were able to look at more than 80 pages of hospital records that were provided by Murdoch's legal team. They were really only released because so many people had been theorizing that Murdoch wasn't actually shot at all. And this was all just a made up story. So they released these records in order to sort of combat that and push back on that narrative. And the records show that he was treated for a pair of wounds on his scalp on the back of his head that appeared to be caused by you know a gunshot. It showed that he was bleeding significantly from the back of his head and suffered a, a small skull fracture. And it also really detailed his, his mannerisms and the way he behaved at the hospital. I uh, seemed really impatient, like he really wanted to get out. He complained a lot that the three pain medicines he was being given weren't enough. He also did test positive for opiates and barbiturates when he was admitted to the hospital, which seems to verify his lawyer's claim that he was dealing with an opioid addiction. Those were pretty revealing records. And one thing I think that it, it was important that they were able to nail down just one of these very fundamental facts of the case that had been in doubt, oddly enough, for so long, which was, was he actually shot? Aside from statements from Alec Murdoch and his lawyers, has there been any evidence presented to show that Curtis Edward Smith was the person who shot Alec Murdoch? We know that Sled questioned Smith extensively. And in the warrants that they released for Murdoch's arrest, as well as Smith's arrest, they showed that Murdoch basically confessed to this entire scheme and that Smith confessed to two things, being there at the time of the shooting and disposing of the gun afterward. The warrants don't make it appear like Smith admitted to the entire scheme. But at this point, we're essentially looking at a case of Smith's word against Murdoch's. I understand that there was some other evidence that placed Smith at the scene, but again, Smith is not denying that he was there. There was a video camera on a nearby church that captured his truck turning around, and that's how they initially started focusing on him. But again, as Avery says, he, he doesn't deny he was there. 
the gun would be a, a you know a big piece of evidence, obviously. But Smith says he doesn't remember where he threw it. It's just gone someplace. And I suppose even if you got the gun, they'd have prints on it. But under both stories, he either fired it or struggled first. So, it, so it's it's really difficult to determine. It is a tough ask of Sled when the evidence is basically admitted by both sides, and there's little other types of evidence that could, at this point, could make clear which side is telling the truth. After being arrested in connection with that alleged insurance fraud scheme, Alec Murdoch was arrested again, this time in connection with other alleged crimes connected to a lawsuit filed by the sons of his late housekeeper. We'll explain that case right after this quick message. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barry Hawes, a reporter from The Post and Courier. Working as a local reporter, I found that we can cover national stories in a way that reporters who come in from New York or DC or Atlanta simply cannot. We've lived in the community, we have contacts in the community, we've raised children here, we own houses here. We can bring perspectives that somebody coming in from the outside simply cannot. When stories come up, we know who to contact to find out what's going on. We understand the impact that it has on people who live here because we live here as well. That's why the local perspective that we provide is so important. Learn more at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. Who was Gloria Satterfield and how is she connected to the Murdoch family? Gloria Satterfield was the Murdoch family's longtime nanny and housekeeper. She had been around the family for a couple of decades. She was 57 years old in February 2018 when, according to court records, she slipped and fell uh, on the steps of Murdoch's home in Colleton County. That was in February 2018, and then a few weeks after that, she died from her injuries. So recently, her two sons filed a lawsuit against Alec Murdoch. What was that saying? And like you said, her death happened in 2018. Do we know why this is just coming to light now? Satterfield's sons in mid-September filed a lawsuit alleging that they had learned that essentially a pair of settlements worth $4.3 million had been secretly negotiated on their behalf without their knowledge and they realized that obviously they, they hadn't received a dime of that money. So they filed a lawsuit trying to determine where the money went and how, how they could recover it. That lawsuit has evolved over time. Parts of it have been settled. The lawsuit was brought by attorneys Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter. Later on, they got a hold of financial documents, checks, et cetera, and they laid out a paper trail of evidence that alleges that essentially from start to finish, Satterfield dies after the slip and fall. After the funeral, they alleged that Alec Murdoch approached the sons and encouraged them to file a wrongful death claim against him so that they could get some money out of it. And he encouraged them to hire Corey Fleming, uh, who's a Beaufort lawyer, but he did not tell them that Corey Fleming is one of his best friends, former roommate and classmate, as well as the godfather of his son, Paul. So the Satterfield sons hired Fleming. He began working the case for them, but he also encouraged them to turn over their title as personal representative for their mother's estate to a banker named Chad Westendorf, who Fleming said would be more equipped to handle some of the complex business matters that could arise from that wrongful death claim. 
They do so, and then right after Westendorf is appointed, a partial settlement of about $500,000 is agreed to. That money gets negotiated and Fleming gets that money ostensibly for the family. Later on in the case, another settlement gets negotiated for another, I think, $3.7 or $3.8 million, ostensibly for the family as well. The family says they'd never heard about any of that. They had no idea that money was negotiated on their behalf. Where Alex Murdoch comes in, which is bizarre because he's a defendant in this case, is according to the lawsuit, Murdoch talks to his buddy, Corey Fleming, and tells him where to direct the money. And he tells him to direct it to this bank account called Forge. And according to lawsuits and according to state prosecutors now, that Forge account was created by Alec Murdoch in 2015. And it was made to resemble Forge Consulting, which is a legitimate Atlanta-based financial firm that handles settlements. Murdoch gets his buddy Fleming to send the money not to the Satterfields, but to this bank account. And from there, the money disappeared. And according to state prosecutors, Murdoch pocketed it and transferred the money to himself. It's worth noting, too, so SLED is also investigating the circumstances around Gloria Satterfield's death. The initial partial settlement agreement indicated she died in a slip and fall in Hampton County, but doesn't say where. The assumption was it was at Murdoch's house. But when we asked for records uh, from the coroner's office there, from the sheriff's office, from EMTs, all those those records, they just didn't exist. The, The coroner had no record of her having died. We eventually tracked down that she had died at Trident Hospital in North Charleston. But because she was under a doctor's care, the Charleston County coroners weren't called in to, to look at this, nor did they alert the Hampton County coroner to, to the death. It gets even more confusing because the Hampton County coroner gets curious and she starts calling around and she eventually calls SLED and says, you need to look into this because, you know, there's no, she got a hold of the death certificate, which indicated Satterfield died of natural causes, which would seem to belie the whole notion that she died this in this slip and fall accident, unless something possibly precipitated that. But the paperwork that's come out in the last couple of weeks indicates that the accident did not occur at the Hampton House, but rather at the same hunting lodge in Colleton County where Maggie and Paul Murdoch were killed in June. So there's all this swirling confusion around this, this stuff. And as Avery pointed out, the Suns apparently didn't even know that a settlement had been reached and only learned about that, I believe, through media reports after stories on the Murdoch family became coming out after the deaths. And what has Murdoch or his attorneys said in response to this lawsuit? Murdoch, with regards to this lawsuit, had the benefit of being in rehab. The lawyers and the and the process servers for this case had no idea where he was. So he was only served with the lawsuit in mid-October. So he really hasn't had to respond. He hasn't even really filed legal representation or, or hired anybody to represent him in that specific case yet. He was arrested on these charges and was represented by his lawyers, Dick Arputlian and Jim Griffin at the bond hearing, but he hasn't said anything in his defense. In other allegations against him, he's admitted fault, such as stealing money from his law firm, but he hasn't admitted fault in this case. In fact, his his lawyers at the bond hearing tried to shift more of the blame over to Corey Fleming, the lawyer who worked the case on behalf of the Satterfields. Fleming has settled the case. He's agreed to pay up 
all the legal fees he earned from the case to the Satterfield family. He's admitted that he made mistakes, but he in turn has pointed the finger back at his friend Murdoch and said that Murdoch misled him and that he had thought that all the money had reached his clients. Murdoch appeared at a bond hearing after his arrest in the Satterfield case midway through this month. And in somewhat of a surprising move, Judge Clifton Newman ordered him detained indefinitely until he can receive the results of a psychiatric evaluation showing that Murdoch is not a danger to himself or the community. Aver, you also had an update this week that federal authorities are investigating Alex's alleged financial crimes. So what do we know so far about this, about what maybe specifically federal authorities are looking into versus state authorities, SLED? SLED has been running all of the investigations into the Murdochs since June, since the, the deaths of Maggie and Paul. That's kind of been the status quo up until last month in September when it came out that federal investigators were at least involved on a limited basis, kind of an as-needed basis, as SLED Chief Mark Heal termed it. And then this week, we learned and reported that the FBI, the DOJ, the U.S. Attorney's Office for South Carolina, they have actually opened their own investigation, at least into the financial crimes that have been alleged against Murdoch, and that that investigation has been going on for a couple of weeks at this point. We quoted Ronnie Richter, one of the lawyers for the Satterfield family, who said he has, quote, direct knowledge, end quote, that they are investigating the alleged financial crimes. And we quoted Murdoch's attorney, Jim Griffin, who said that he had been on a conference call on October 14th with people from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they were at the beginning of their investigation, and they were interested in whether Murdoch would cooperate with their investigation as they they planned their next steps. So we know from people who are in the know that the feds have opened their own investigation, but we don't know that much about the dynamic between state and federal investigators. You know, we talked to some experts who said it would make a lot of sense in this case for both sides to play to their strengths. You know, the feds are really good at investigating white collar crime, financial crime, fraud, corruption, et cetera, following the money, determining where the money went, who benefited, et cetera. And SLED is really good at investigating violent crime. And they have a lot of sort of jack of all trade investigators who could focus on on those aspects of the Murdoch investigations. But at this point, we just don't know what that division of labor is. So we've discussed a, a lot of different allegations. Could we go over what are all of the investigations that state authorities currently have open connected to the Murdoch family since the murders of Maggie and Paul in June. Case number one, we have the murders of Maggie and Paul in June. Paul, 22, Maggie, 52, both shot to death with different weapons at the family's hunting lodge in Colleton County. No suspects have been identified in that case. No arrests have been made. Uh, SLED's investigating that. In the course of that investigation, SLED said it uncovered new information related to the mysterious death of a kid named Stephen Smith, whose body was found along a rural road in Hampton County back in 2015. Initially, it was thought that he uh, had been a victim of a hit-and-run accident. The Highway Patrol, which investigated, disagreed. Uh, their lead investigator disagreed with the conclusions offered by the pathologist there. 
and, and asked whether he might have been beaten to death. That was never really determined. The Murdoch's name came up in the Highway Patrol investigative file, as well as a bunch of other leads. Uh, SLED says it has new information. SLED's looking into that case. The state grand jury is looking into the investigation state DNR conducted into the fatal boat crash in uh, 2019, the one that killed Mallory Beach. That was a boat that belonged to Alec Murdoch, driven by his son, Paul Murdoch. After a night of drinking, the boat crashed into a bridge in Beaufort. Mallory and the rest of the passengers on board were, were thrown overboard. She didn't surface. There were some questions about whether there had been improper meddling or how the evidence was handled. Supposedly, suppose a state grand jury is looking into that. SLED's also looking into the circumstances surrounding the death of Gloria Satterfield and the embezzling of money there. SLED's additionally looking into allegations of money embezzled from the Murdoch family law firm, which Alec quit. And finally, there is the Labor Day shooting that SLED's involved in investigating it. They've arrested Alex for in this staged assisted suicide plot. Since the shooting in, in June, it's really exponentially multiplied the cases that law enforcement is is investigating connected to this family. So to go back to that original case, has there been any progress in determining who killed Maggie and Paul Murdoch? That, that's very difficult to say because SLED has said almost nothing about this other than we know that Alec discovered the bodies, called it in over 911. He supposedly has had an ironclad alibi. We've heard from sources that two different weapons were involved. We've heard one was a, a shotgun. One was like an AR-15 military-style rifle. Beyond that, I mean, it's just been a swirl of rumors and speculation. There were some early reports that Alec might be a person of interest in the case SLED's never said that on the record. SLED's never come out and said much of anything about that. So there's, a, like I said, there's a whole lot of speculation, a whole lot of suspicion surrounding this. But, you know, what do we know today? We don't know much more than we did back on like June 8th. And Murdoch's attorney, Jim Griffin, went on TV earlier this month and said that, to his knowledge, his client remains a person of interest. And Griffin and Harpoolian have expressed frustration at times, including at the press conference after the bond hearing earlier this month, that SLED seems to be operating under the assumption that Alec Murdoch killed his wife and son. And, you know, they insinuated that SLED wasn't really going after a lot of the other potential possibilities. Murdoch's attorneys also have gone on TV to mention that they are running their own parallel investigation into who might have killed Maggie and Paul. And they hoped that the revelation that Murdoch has a drug problem and, you know, potentially has been mixed in with maybe some dangerous people in, in the drug trade, maybe that would open some new leads into who might have had motive to kill Maggie and Paul. But since making that announcement, they have not been willing to answer questions about whatever they're finding in their private in investigation. And they said they haven't turned over any potential leads or, or suspects to SLED in that either. So, you know, they're being almost as quiet about whatever they're learning, if anything, as SLED is. 
So we described this kind of exponential growth of all of the different cases and, and allegations to look into the different threads of this story to follow and kind of at that same time, the interest in this story, or really stories, although many connected stories, has grown as well. I mean, national, international. What are some of the challenges of covering and following a story like this when it has gotten to that kind of scale of of interest? There's so many people looking into this from so many different places. It, it becomes difficult just to keep track of the story, right? Because all these different outlets are, are incrementally putting out little slivers of evidence or new little factoids or, or, or little interviews. Uh, all of which have to be tracked down and verified. Uh, there's there's a lot of rumor and speculation going on around this. A lot of amateur sleuths working on it, and you know we've heard reports about uh, you know filmmakers and and larger outlets coming in and buying up people's life rights, buying affidavits, uh, you know just throwing money at people to get their exclusive stories. So that becomes a challenge because if if so, that sort of shutting away people who could potentially shed light on this story and for, for a, a later date, maybe for some, you know, movie event that comes out five years from now, who knows, uh, you know, cause we don't go around, we don't pay for stories. We don't pay for people's affidavits or things like that. We just ask people to tell us what they know, it, but it, it poses a challenge because so many people are trying to get to the bottom of this and competing for information. It's led to, both challenging from a resource standpoint, but also challenging from a misinformation standpoint, because things get out there that are just assumed as fact, and it becomes difficult to unwind that spool. It's just like the hospital records story. There were conspiracy theories and podcasts and you name it online, questioning whether he was actually shot, questioning the severity of the injury. And so you you know, you end up pressuring his attorneys to release medical records, which you almost never see in, in any other case. Um, and I, I don't know about Glenn, but, you know, I've covered political campaigns. I've covered courthouses and the VC summer investigation, and I've covered sports. And I've never seen a more competitive story than this one with so many people trying to vie for a slice of the pie. And it's, it's been really fascinating, at times frustrating, at times rewarding to, um, to follow. It's it's like an insatiable appetite for snippets of information, and there's so many different investigations, right? I mean, it's any one of these storylines could be an explosive story that you follow for months and months. These are complicated things with like you know financial records and long histories and and people who are no longer here and witnesses that have disappeared and. I've had calls from friends in, in New England and on the West Coast. And, and can, can you tell me anything more about the Murdoch case? But people are just hooked on this thing. I think it's the, the power, the wealth, the, the reputation of the family, this sort of Southern Gothic backdrop to it all. It's, it's fascinating to people. All right, that's all for today. We recorded this discussion at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, October 27th. Visit postingcourier.com to follow all of the latest reporting. You can find Avery on Twitter at Avery G. Wilkes and Glenn at GlennSmith5. We've also linked multiple stories in today's show notes where you can read more of the Posting Courier's reporting on these cases. 
If you have comments, questions, or ideas for this podcast, email us at understandsc at postingcareer.com or DM us on Twitter at understandsc. We'll be back next week with a different news story from our state. Thanks for listening.